Good morning. I want to invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn with me to John 11. We're going to be in verses 1 through 44. It'll be up on the screen as well. And as you turn there, I want to ask you to ponder a couple of questions just within your own mind. What's the best gift you've ever received? What kind of thoughts does that bring to your mind? I don't know anyone who's experienced this, but there are commercials, so it must happen. You know those Lexus commercials where you walk outside and there's a a Lexus in the driveway with a bow on it? Christmas to remember? (laughs) Be a gift to remember. What's the most painful loss that you've ever suffered? Maybe you think of more than one. Is there a prayer that you've been praying that seems to you yet unanswered? Those questions probably stir some deep emotions, the, the range of emotions, joy and glad memories and pain and sorrow. I want you to look with me at John 11 where God offers you powerful grace in the person of Christ for all of life's joys and sorrows. Grace that God means to pour out into your life for all that life throws at you, all of its joys and all of its sorrows. This is God's holy and authoritative word. John 11, verse 1. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. 
Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking. Thank you for making yourself known. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, the word made flesh. You are perfectly one, and in Jesus we see all that you are, your character and your ways, and you communicate yourself to us today in this moment for all of life's joys and all of life's sorrows, and we pray that your grace would overflow and abound to us. Father, you know each person here, each one receiving, hearing your word. You know the thoughts and the questions and the doubts. You know the sin and the unbelief. You know the pains and the griefs. Communicate yourself so that our joy in you would be full today. In Jesus' name, amen.
So I'm convinced that the Holy Spirit intends to use this text to convince you that Jesus is better than anything life can give and anything death can take. That's a phrase I've heard John Piper use in various places. Better than anything life can give or death can take. Jesus is better. And to be convinced of that is an incredible gift of God's grace to us. Just think of the spectrum between life and death, between joy and sorrow, between all that we long for and all that we fear. Jesus is better than the best that life has to offer. I think that's what this text teaches. And he is stronger than the worst that illness, calamity, even death itself can do to us. In all of our joys, nothing compares to Jesus. And in all of our sorrow, there is no comfort like Jesus. That's the truth John 11 reveals. And I want you to see where I get that so that your trust and your confidence, your conviction that that's true would be firmly rooted and established in the Word of God because His Word is authoritative. And that's what we need in the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. We need something more than our feelings and emotions, like Greg was talking about, the instability of life and relationships. We need God's authoritative word. So John 11 teaches that Jesus is the best gift in life, the best thing you could ever receive. Think about it this way. The essence of love is giving. That's what we see. We know that the Bible says God is love, But when Scripture speaks about God's love, the verb that often goes along with that is to give. Look at John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his only son. Or Galatians 2, 20. Paul says, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Or Ephesians 5, 2. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. God loves, and so he gives. God gives because he loves. That's what God's love is. He gives. And we could go to Ephesians 5, 25, or 2 Thessalonians 2, 16. This is all over in Scripture. So the question is, what's the best gift God could give us? If God loves, so he gives, what does he give us? How how do you finish that sentence? If God really loves me, he would give me What? I mean, we all know the right answer, right? But if we're honest, where where do our minds go when we think about that? God, if you really love me, why wouldn't you just... Is it health? Is it wealth? Is it comfort and convenience? Is it community? Is it freedom? What's the best thing God could give us? John 11 reveals that the best gift God can give you is himself. So look at this. Lazarus was terribly ill. So his two sisters, Martha and Mary, they send word to Jesus. And look at how Jesus responds in verse 4. His first reaction is to explain to his disciples exactly where all of this is going. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. We looked at this back in chapter 9 when Jesus dealt with the blind man. This blindness is not because he sinned or his parents, but it's for the glory of God. This is Jesus' interpretive framework for all of life. He says, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So just keep that in mind. Let that be kind of the the heading, the banner over the rest of the story. Whatever else happens next, don't forget that it's all moving toward this ultimate end. Everything Jesus does 
And remember, as he's taught us throughout John, he doesn't do anything unless he sees the Father doing it. He doesn't say anything unless he hears the Father saying it. Everything Jesus does is for the sake of publicly displaying, manifesting, making known, making visible the glory of God. Everything Jesus does is about making the glory of God known to the world. He is the light who has come into the world, into the darkness. So, Look at this. Despite the fact, I think, that, that that truth that God does, everything he does for his own glory, despite the fact that that's revealed all over Scripture, I think that truth, that the radical God-centeredness of God, God does all that he does to exalt his glory, to display his glory, I think that often strikes even professing Christians as strange or, or even a little offensive, and if you don't pay close attention here, I think you could misunderstand Jesus' words almost as, as cold or indifferent. You might even be tempted to think, is that selfish or arrogant of him? D did Jesus really just say Lazarus' illness? I mean, think about the reality of terminal illness, physical pain, emotional pain. He's approaching death. I mean, we know the end. Lazarus actually experienced death. So, so think about everything Lazarus endures. Did Jesus just really say all of that pain and all of that suffering and all the grief that the sisters endured, did he really just say, that is for my glory? Yeah, he did. He did. But John is careful and insistent that this is not selfishness. It's not coldness on Jesus' part. Rather, it is generous love. This is how Jesus loves. Look at how John sandwiches that purpose statement by Jesus. This illness is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. John sandwiches that between two clear statements of Jesus' love for Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Verse 3, the sisters make their appeal. Jesus, he whom you Love is ill. Next verse. This illness is, is not unto death. It's for the glory of God. Next verse, verse 5. John reemphasizes this. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So don't forget it. Don't forget this. Jesus loves them. And everything that he's doing then has these two goals in mind. The glory of God and love for Mary and Martha and, and even Lazarus who died. In fact, what happens next might seem unloving had John not so clearly told us Jesus loves Lazarus. Look at verses 5 and 6 together. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus so and that word so is in English, translated from the Greek word un, which is a logical word. It's an argument word. It's a formal word that means therefore. It means for this reason. It, it links two points and says this one that follows comes on the grounds of or because what just happened before. Jesus loved them and for this reason he, what? He stayed two days longer. Because he loved them, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was staying. That is not at all what we expect. In, in fact, the old version of the NIV used to have the word yet because the translators thought, that just can't be. That's not the word we expect there. And so they changed it and put yet instead. 
Because Jesus loved them, he waited. And while he waited, Lazarus died. We know Lazarus was still alive when the news arrived. Jesus says this illness is not unto death. And then he waits, and two days later, he says in verses 14 and 15, Lazarus has died, let's go. That's his cue. He knows supernaturally Lazarus has died, and that's his cue to go. How in the world is that loving? It's loving because love gives, and love always gives what is best. And the best thing Jesus can give to those he loves is his own glory. Seeing the glory of God displayed in Jesus is better than receiving anything else from God, even physical healing. Beholding the glory of God in Jesus is better than receiving anything else from God, including physical healing. Remember, Jesus already gave us a heading at the beginning. This illness is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified in it. Then when he goes to Bethany and they're standing outside of the tomb, what does he say to Martha? Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would what? See the glory of God. That's what he is up to in this, giving those he loves a deeper, fuller, richer experience of the glory of God than they could have ever imagined in their wildest dreams. This is how Jesus demonstrates his love for you, by doing whatever it takes to show you the glory of the Father. That's how he loves you. He loves you and he wants you to share in the joy he has in the glory of the Father that he has had for all eternity. What greater gift could he give us than that? And you need not fear. You need not fear. If that makes you think, oh my gosh, what kind of illness or suffering might God inflict me with in order to cause me to see his glory? I don't want that. No thanks. You need not fear. Jesus exalts the glory of God for the good of his people. Always. Look at verses 14 and 15 again. Jesus then told his disciples plainly, Lazarus has died. And look at this phrase. For your sake, I am glad. I think the Greek is even stronger than I am glad. It's the word, I rejoice. I exult. Lazarus has died. And I am overflowing with joy for you. What? I rejoice that I was not there so that you may believe. Even more than physical healing, the faith of his people causes Jesus to rejoice. And you can know whatever Jesus does, he's doing because the Father does it. The Father rejoices when you trust the Son. And it causes Jesus to rejoice when his glory is revealed and when you see it and believe it and trust it. Look at verse 42 where Jesus is praying outside of the tomb and he says to the Father, I said this, on account of the people. All that he's doing, he's doing with people in mind for their good, for their benefit. I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. So he's doing two things, and it's actually one thing. He's exalting the glory of God, and he's doing it so that people whom he loves would see and believe. That's God's passion, to display his glory for your good. Now, what if that's not comforting to you? When Jesus arrives in Bethany, do you catch Mary and Martha both said the exact same thing? 
to Jesus? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Have you ever prayed a prayer and felt like your request has not been answered? We say things like, I feel like I'm just praying to the wall. And then notice what we're saying. I feel like, it's not the truth, it's not the reality, but we, that's how it feels. I feel like I'm just praying and nothing's happening. If you've ever felt that, you, you can relate to Martha and Mary. We, we sent word, come quickly. If you had been here, he wouldn't have died. Their friends had a similar thought. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Now notice this. It's not that they doubted Jesus could have healed Lazarus. This is a unique kind of thought. Maybe in some of them even we could call it unbelief. The kind to which only those who trust God are susceptible. They actually believe he could heal. That's the reason that they have this thought, what exactly are you up to? Why didn't you come? We totally believe you could have healed him. So they do believe, and because they believe, they're prone to this line of thinking. Atheists and skeptics don't worry these things. They don't even think it's real or true or possible anyway. This kind of unbelief that they're in danger of is the kind that results when you think you can advise God on what he ought to do, when he ought to do it, how it ought to be done. It's one thing to lament, like Martha does here in, in verse 22. Lord, I know you could have healed my brother, but even now I trust you. What a powerful statement. I know you could have healed him. Even now I, I trust you, and I know that God will give you whatever you ask for. I still trust you. But watch out for the hard, critical thoughts toward God that arise specifically in the hearts of those who do profess to believe in a sovereign God. I know people who think this way. I hear people lament this way. I know God's sovereign. I know that this problem in my life, it's, it's him. He's doing it to me. And that thought doesn't come with comfort. It's just, it creates this bitterness against God. God is doing this to me. I have a sliver of truth and not the whole truth of the character of God. And so it creates these hard, resentful thoughts about God. It is human. It is totally human and acceptable to cry, Lord, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what you're doing. Absolutely true. And it can be an expression of faith to cry that way. It is sinful to complain, Lord, you don't know what you're doing. There's a huge difference. I don't know what you're doing, and it hurts, and I'm grieving. Absolutely true. Lord, you don't know what you're doing is not true and impugns the character of God. He does know what he's doing. He is graciously working all things together for the glory of God and for your good because he loves you. That's what he's doing. So if you don't find this comforting, just ask yourself two questions. One, do you think you know better than God? That's, that's the question that stops my unbelief in its tracks. When I just stop and think, if I were to follow this unbelieving thought down that trail... I would have to say, I'm confident, I know better than God. I don't, so I'm, I'm turning away because that path leads to death. I'm turning my mind back to this humble submission. I don't know what you're doing, but I trust you. Do you think you know better than God what's best for you? Two, do you desire something other than God more than you desire God himself? 
To know that God is doing all things to show you his glory is comforting if you've treasured the glory of God. And if you'd rather have something other than the glory of God, then turn back to him. Repent and believe. Turn away from whatever else it is that you desire other than God and turn to God as your supreme desire. The way you receive God's gift of himself is by believing in Jesus. That, that's what's absolutely central through this whole narrative from beginning to end. Faith in Jesus is central, verses 14 and 15, so that you may believe, verse 25, whoever believes in me, verse 26, everyone who lives and believes in me, verse 26, he asks Martha the question, do you believe this? Verse 40, didn't I tell you if you believed you would see the glory of God? Verse 42, I said this so that they may believe that you sent me. All the way through, Jesus is working to win the glad allegiance, the trust of his people, because you trusting him is how you receive this gift he gives of himself. Trust him. Trust him. The extent to which you trust Jesus, who he is, what he's doing, how he's working in all things for his glory and your joy, that is the extent to which you will enjoy peace and contentment in all of life, no matter your circumstances, to the extent that you trust Jesus, who he is, what he's doing, and how he's working, that's the extent to which you will enjoy this peace and relationship to God. But I think this text also reveals that Jesus is the best comfort in loss. He's the best gift in life, and he is the best comfort in loss. Notice that when Jesus arrived, Martha runs out to meet him, but Mary remained seated at home. Martha is verbally expressing her faith. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Mary expresses faith, but there are no words. She just rises quickly when Jesus calls for her and she goes out to meet him. There's no mention of Martha weeping. Imagine she shed tears, but there's no mention of it. Mary's grief is outwardly evident. She remains seated at home, probably in her grief, when she comes to Jesus, she collapses at his feet. There's no mention of Martha falling at his feet. She weeps audibly. The word used there is this audible wailing. And Jesus relates to them differently. With Martha, he engages in this conversation and reveals these incredible, glorious, profound theological truths. I am the resurrection and the life. With Mary, Jesus wept and asked a question. Where have you laid the body? He deals with them differently. He knows how to comfort those who mourn. He's able to relate to and sympathize with those who grieve in personal ways. What a picture of Jesus walking alongside of those who are grieving, those whom he loves, and comforting them. But Jesus is the best comfort in loss because, this is important, because he rescues you from despair. That's what you need the most when you suffer loss. You need a savior who can rescue you from despair. John eleven thirty three 33 says, when Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. I think that translation misses the sense of the, the Greek. It give, deeply moved gives the sense more of compassion. And I think 
Jesus certainly felt compassion here. He, he weeps in the next couple of verses. But the word translated deeply moved is, is the Greek word embremaomai, which outside of the Bible is often used to describe horses snorting. So, so this is more like he, he snorted in his spirit, literally. When it's applied to humans, it, it means to be very angry, to be moved with indignation. So, so there's, the, the next word is he was greatly troubled. He was agitated. He was disturbed. So, so something about the sight of Mary and her friends weeping and wailing provoked Jesus. The, the question is, what was he agitated about? What was it that provoked him because Jesus the son of God is perfectly one with God the father then we know that Jesus is displeased with or grieved by or indignant toward whatever is contrary to God whatever displeases God displeases Jesus and I think there are two possibilities in this text one is that Jesus is likely outraged by the effects of sin and death in the world. Death is in the world because sin is in the world. Sin is rebellion against God. People don't die except because of the presence of Adam's sin, and we all share in the guilt of Adam, and so we all die. And Jesus is outraged about the effects of sin and death in the world. Sin leads to suffering. It leads to death, causes pain, but I think there's another possibility, and that is that Jesus was indignant toward unbelieving grief and despair. It was a Jewish custom that even a poor family would, would hire a professional mourner who would wail. And they would hire a flute player. Mary and Martha and Lazarus were not a poor family. There are significant clues that they were pretty wealthy. So maybe they had more than one professional mourner here. D.A. Carson comments that the people here were grieving like pagans. And to grieve like there's no resurrection is to grieve in such a way that denies the resurrection. And to deny the resurrection is to deny Jesus since he is the resurrection and the life. It was when Jesus saw Mary and these others weeping that he was provoked, that he was indignant. Now, now I want to clarify this. Listen carefully. Grief itself is not wrong. In fact, as we see, Jesus himself weeps. He sheds tears. It's worth noting that's a different word there than the one to describe Mary and these other people. The, the one to describe Jesus, he's crying, but not in the same audible wailing way that they are. Grief is okay. But to descend into despair and to wallow in hopelessness, that's a particular attitude of unbelief that denies the character of God, the promises of God, the work of God in the world. I know that the conventional wisdom of the world is there is no wrong way to grieve. But think about what that says. That says that loss is a license to act in any way you want to. You can hurt others. You could hurt yourself. I mean, do, do we really believe that? There, there's nothing you could do sinfully out of grief? No, certainly. In grief, you could act sinfully. Anger itself is not necessarily sinful, but in anger, people do sin. Grief itself is not sin, but grief is not a license to act in sinful ways. And broadly speaking, 
That means God's word calls us to love God and love people. And grief doesn't excuse us from that. Loss is not a license to abandon God's interpretation of the world or to give in to attitudes that blatantly contradict who God is and what he's up to. In fact, if anything, grief is a time when we most desperately need God's interpretation of us and our situation. To see our lives in light of who God is. Let me say this as as gently as I can. I think a lot of people want a Jesus who will just pet their hair, and validate all their feelings. And say, whatever you feel, that's, that's true. But Jesus opposes sin and unbelief in all of its forms. And yes, unbelief can manifest not only in our thoughts and our actions, but in our attitudes. This is why we encourage all of our discipleship huddles to spend time every week dealing with attitudes of unbelief. That's where our unbelief comes out. All of your emotions are real. That's the extent to which we can validate emotions. They're real. You really feel what you feel. That's, they're real. But not all of your emotions are true. They're not all accurate. Emotions arise in response to what you think and believe about yourself and your circumstance and about God. So if what you think and believe is not true, then the emotions you feel in response to those untrue thoughts and judgments are not accurate. And Jesus loves us, so he enters into our pain, but without jumping. I mean, if you're sinking in quicksand, you don't need somebody to jump in and sink with you. You need somebody to pull you out. That's what Jesus does. He weeps, he grieves, he feels the pain of sin and death in the world, and he pulls you out of hopeless despair and unbelief. That is tremendously good news. Jesus meets you where you are, but he doesn't leave you there. He's able to lift you out of despair. When, When Martha is grieving about the death of her brother, what question does Jesus ask her? Do you believe this? Why is he having a theological conversation, eschatological conversation about end things, last days, resurrection? What does eschatology have to do with my brother's death. I mean, this, this is our problem. We don't see how truth about Jesus is relevant to everything we go through. We think, well, creeds and confessions, that, that's abstract. That doesn't comfort me. I just want to feel better right now because I don't feel good. Believing truth about Jesus is what you most need when you go through painful things truth about Jesus in all of your pain and all of your suffering your greatest need is to know and trust Jesus and Jesus ultimately is the greatest comfort in loss because he suffered infinite loss for you uh, the irony in the story is that Jesus returned to Jerusalem to raise Lazarus from the dead and to die this is the last time he, he's now just outside of Jerusalem, and he's on his way to die. This is his last and greatest sign. It's a transition in his ministry. The disciples know it. They they said, you sure you want to go back there? The Jews were just now trying to stone you, and you're going back there? You hear what Thomas said to Jesus? Well, not to Jesus, to the others. All right, guys, let's go. Let's go die with him. He's not far off. 
He goes back to raise his friend from the dead and to die. He not only weeps over pain and misery that sin and death cause in the world, he endures it. He died. And in so doing, he suffered the loss. Think about what he lost when he died. The loss of eternal glory seated with the Father in heaven. And he made himself nothing, as Philippians 2 says. Humbled himself, became obedient to death. Not just any death, but a, an inglorious death. The death of a criminal on the cross. He suffered the loss of his father's pleasure. It was the father's goodwill to crush him for you. He endured the wrath of God against sin so that by God's grace, you will never suffer loss like he did. Ever. He died so you don't have to. And because he has endured, whatever you're going through or may ever go through, you can know Jesus endured far greater suffering than you will ever know Therefore, he can always relate to you. He is a merciful and gracious high priest who's able to sympathize with you in your weakness. I, I love this. I, I know I've quoted this before, but this is a powerful way to say it, this poem, Jesus of the Scars by Edward Shalito. He wrote, the other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds... Only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. The world has never heard of a God who suffers for his people. And so he is the best comfort in loss. And Jesus is stronger than the grave. Ultimately, this, this is why. Jesus is better than anything life can give because Jesus is the one who gives life. Jesus is better than anything death can take because Jesus is the one who takes back from death. Jesus. Look at his conversation with Martha, verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And she says, I know. I believe that. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection when? On the last day. Now Martha and lots of Jews, the Pharisees were among them. They believed in an eschatological, end times, last day resurrection. Capital R, the resurrection. On the last day, there is a coming event when the dead will be raised. Martha says, I believe in that, Lord. Good orthodox belief. My brother will be raised from the dead. Listen then what Jesus says. I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the resurrection. She says, I believe in the resurrection event. He says, it's not just an event, it's a person, and it's me, and I'm here now, and I'm giving the life of the resurrection age to come to anyone who believes in me now. That's what he's saying. That's what nobody saw coming. That is the revelation of the glory of God for the good of his people because he loves us. And that's what he wanted Mary and Martha and Lazarus and his disciples and the Jews all around them and the whole world down through the ages to see he is the resurrection and the life. When he says, I'm the resurrection, he explains that means whoever believes in me, even though he dies physically, yet he shall live. You will be raised out of the grave. I stopped by Isaac's gravesite. 
this last week, and I just knelt on the ground and just feeling the cold, hard dirt and the grass, thinking six feet down, he's packed under all this dirt, and Jesus is going to open graves and bring people to life. That is glorious. He's going to raise us from the dead, all who believe. And when he says, I am the life, he explains in that second part of the statement, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never ever die. He doesn't mean physically. He just means you will now possess the life of the age to come and you'll never lose it. To close your eyes in death here will be to open them in glory and you will never die. Ever. Eternal life is not just long life as we've said other times in this series. I mean, imagine living forever in sin and misery. That would be unpleasant. It's not just long life he gives. It's the life of the age to come, which is superlative life. That is life to the fullest, the best, the most, the most abundant life because it's the very life of God, as Jesus has told us in other parts of John. The Father has life in himself, and he gave life to the Son, so the Son has life in himself, and the Father makes alive, and he was pleased to allow the Son to make people alive, and so everyone who's in me lives with the very life of God that I possess in me. Do you want it? believe. Do you believe? Yes, Lord, I believe. And because he's the resurrection and the life, look how he thinks about death. He told his disciples, I'm going to wake him up. They didn't catch it was a figure of speech. I mean, that's how literal, I mean, the sense of what he's saying, I'm going to wake him up, and they just think, okay, he's sleeping. Let him sleep. He's, a, he's sick. Let him sleep. I'm going to wake him up. Jesus thinks about death as sleep. If you have any doubts about his ability to raise you from the dead, just think. He thinks about raising the dead like it's as easy as walking into someone's room and waking them up when they're sleeping. That's how easy it is to him because he is the resurrection and the life. And I know that others have commented on this passage before. He says, Lazarus, come out. And others have said, if he didn't specify Lazarus, if he just said, come out, all the dead would have come out of their tombs. He is the resurrection and the life, and at his command, the dead will wake up and live. Let me close with these words from William Copper's hymn, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. And may you be convinced, convinced that Knowing Jesus, treasuring Jesus, trusting Jesus is far better than the best life can give and the worst that death can do. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain.
Let's pray.